Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, interviewing Dr. David Viveros Carreño, who is in the Department of Gynecological Oncology at the Instituto Nacional de Cancerología in Bogota, Colombia. The reason for this podcast is a recently published manuscript titled Fertility Sparing Surgery After Neoadjuvant Chemotherapy in Women with Cervical Cancer Larger Than Four Centimeters, a systematic review. David, welcome and thank you so much once again for accepting our invitation to participate in the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of the podcast, you know, and it's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, thank you uh, once again, and, uh, and, and, and thank you for, for that comment uh, as well. I, I assure our listeners it was not prompted, so um, thank you for, uh, for that. Um, so, David, obviously, you know, an, a very interesting topic. Um, you know, most, most institutions, I think, um, uh, for tumors greater than four centimeters with cervical cancer, uh, would go straight to uh, chemotherapy and radiation. But obviously, um, infertility sparing uh, is different, and, and we need to consider what are some of the other options for these patients. So I was really glad to see this, uh, this review that I certainly encourage our viewers to, to read, um, because I think it's really great work by you and your team. So I wanted to start by discussing, first, what is the standard recommendation for therapy in patients with tumors greater than four centimeters according to NCCN guidelines? And is fertility preservation an option uh, by those guidelines in these patients? Uh, you know, according to the last NCCN cervical cancer guidelines, the standard treatment recommendation is, uh, like you said before, concomitant platinum-based chemoradiotherapy. It includes external beam radiotherapy and also brachytherapy, and this is a category one recommendation. Uh, however, the guideline gives room for the option of upfront radical hysterectomy, you know, with limb node evaluation as a category 2B recommendation and adjuvant therapies according to the pathology report. For fertility sparing treatments in general, these and almost all guidelines, uh, there is no place for treatment with tumors larger than four centimeters. It's not standard treatment and even not an option. Yeah. So um, now what made you decide to perform this review? Um, in other words, what made you consider this to be an important question to address in gynecologic oncology? Oh, sure. Uh, unfortunately, cervical cancer is still a common cancer all over the world. It's the fourth most common neoplasia in women, more than 500,000 cases per year. And approximately a third of patients are diagnosed younger than 45 years old. You know, there is also a delay now in childbearing and an important number of women of reproductive age desire fertility sparing treatments. We see that situation in clinical practice as patients ask us about options for fertility preservation after we propose the standard treatment. Uh, you know, patients with tumors smaller than two centimeters are ideal candidates for fertility sparing surgery, but patients with tumors larger than four centimeters, we have some concerns about the ideal treatment. There is the option of upfront radical trachelectomy or neoadjuvant chemotherapy. But so far, the evidence for fertility sparing treatment in this population is based only on retrospective observational studies. And patients with tumors larger than four centimeters were included in the same groups of the original studies and the previous systematic reviews of patients with tumors between two and four centimeters. 
Uh, as you know, patients with tumors larger than four centimeters have a different prognosis. Uh, they have a higher risk of implant metastasis and also higher risk of recurrence. And the number of cases with tumors larger than four centimeters is really limited in previous studies. Uh, it's possible that the conclusions that we had from previous uh, reviews were valid only for patients with tumors between two and four centimeters. Uh, we thought then that they should be evaluated independently and decided to conduct this systematic review to obtain the best available evidence. Great. And, and that brings me to my next several questions would come from uh, our fellows in the journal, um, specifically talking about actually doing this review. Um, the first one is from Jessica Sun and uh, here from MD Anderson. Um, and her question is, in, in this high-risk population, um, patient selection would be incredibly important. Um, can you elaborate on the breakdown of how the respective manuscripts selected by you and your team and how they selected their patients? Uh, was it by clinical or radiographic evaluation or otherwise? Okay, that's an excellent question. You know, when we prepared the protocol for the systematic review, there are so many relevant aspects uh, from the original studies that we'd like to know in detail. Unfortunately, uh, given the retrospective nature of the studies, there is a lot of missing information. There were different selection criteria used for patient selection, but all studies included just patients with cervix-limited disease, uh, with a squamous cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, and two cases of adenosquamous carcinoma. And the preoperative workout varied also among studies. All tumor sizes were assessed clinically, and all had a preoperative image, but some patients underwent a PET-CT evaluation, others only CT scan, ultrasound, or MRI. And you know, uh, for all the studies, uh, lymph node metastasis identified through imaging uh, was an exclusion criteria. Uh, and there was also a difference um, for studies uh, about surgical evaluation for lymph node metastasis. Some of them performed uh, the lymph node dissection before neoadjuvant chemotherapy and others simultaneously with the cervical procedure. Uh, I also should take this opportunity to highlight that according to our protocol, we excluded all patients that received intra-arterial chemotherapy. Mm. We only accepted intravenous chemotherapy because there are uh, a few case reports with intra-arterial chemotherapy. Fantastic, yes. And, and we're going to get to the topic of uh, uh, lymph node evaluation in these patients uh, in a little bit. Um, the next question comes from Catherine Hicks-Curant. She's in, um, at the University of Pennsylvania, also one of our fellows in the journal now. And she says, first, I'm very impressed by the effort uh, you took to find um, the 11 studies out of almost 3,000 to contact the authors to get the best data that you could. Could you please speak a little bit about that process? Um, were there any tricks that you used to make it more efficient? Any evidence that you would give the, the researchers considering a similar project? Oh, sure. Thank you. Uh, you know, this systematic review particularly is a institutional effort to get the information about this topic. I think the essential step for conducting a systematic review is writing and registering a protocol as we did for this review. Prospero is the most recognized platform for that purpose. And the protocol works really well as a guide for the review development. 
You know, also in our group, we have an expert person for literature search strategies development, where we manage all the references, screening, selection, and data extraction with the tool called Covidence that I recommend here. It's so uh, important now for our reviews. This tool allows you to go through all the systematic review process faster and easier. All the participants can access at the same time to the information. You can import the results uh, of your search from all the databases, automatically delete, duplicates, you can select highlights for selection of title or abstracts, and that makes all the process easier, particularly when you have uh, so many references to, to search. Um, also, uh, regarding the contact with authors uh, for missing data, we use just email contact as our tool. We ask for valid information from the principal investigators of the original studies. I should mention uh, that there is always a kind answer every time we ask for extra information for these and other projects from all our colleagues over the world. And now there is not only a professional network, but also a friendship network after a project like this. Yeah, fantastic. And it's a massive amount of work and certainly is reflected as, as Catherine suggests in, the, in your methodology. So now um, let's get to, 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 the, to the point of, uh, of the study. What, what would you say are the, the highlights of your study? Wondering if you can talk about what was the median age of these patients, talk also a little bit about uh, tumor size, the type of chemotherapy that was, that was used, and, and of course, obviously, response rates. Okay, sure. First, uh, I'd like to mention that our main finding is that the evidence for use uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy for fertility sparing treatment in patients with tumors larger than four centimeters is really limited. We only found uh, 11 studies, 26 cases of successful treatment in this population. Now about uh, our results, you know, the median age was 28 years old. It ranged uh, between 23 and 37 years. The median tumor size was 4.6 centimeters. We excluded all patients with tumors of just four centimeters. So our range starts in 4.1 centimeters and up to six centimeters. Um, the most common uh, histological subtype was carcinoma, almost 60% and 30% for adenocarcinoma, just two cases of adenosquamous carcinoma. And about the treatment, all patients uh, received platinum-based chemotherapy. There were different combinations and doses among centers, but most patients received cisplatin, uh, more than 80%. The others received just carboplatin. Um, none of the included patients received monotherapy, but doses and the schedule for each agent uh, varied among studies. You know, half of the patients received chemotherapy every three weeks, a third of the patients received uh, chemotherapy in weekly schemes, and uh, some patients also received uh, chemotherapy in 10 day cycles, you know, when uh, they use iphosphamide as part of the chemotherapy scheme. Uh, it really shows that there is no consensus on how we manage this patient among the centers. Um, now regarding Kika, uh, our imaging response, it was available only for 20 of the 26 included patients. And the definition for response, and that's also an issue when we use uh, retrospective studies, was variable among them. The response was assessed clinically, but also with imaging studies for all these patients. But not all studies used resist criteria for evaluation. Some of them used the World Health Organization criteria, and some just did not report where, which criteria they used. 
45% of patients uh, had a complete response and the others had partial response among these 20 patients. And now about the pathological uh, cervical specimen evaluation, it was viable for almost all patients, 25 patients. And of them, uh, half uh, had a complete pathological response and the other had a partial response. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of a good uh, response. Among all these patients, there were only two recurrences. There were local recurrences and were diagnosed after six months of primary treatment during the follow-up. And both patients for the recurrence received curative treatment and no deaths were reported uh, during this follow-up. So lots of uh, questions came up, obviously, about um, these, these results, and we want to discuss them. Uh, we had uh, many uh, of the questions submitted from our fellows. Um, I'm going to start with the issue of the lymph nodes. Um, obviously, this is a patient that has a high risk of having positive lymph nodes, patients with tumors greater than four centimeters. Um, and some might argue that lymph nodes need to be evaluated before embarking on neoadjuvant therapy, while others will say, well, you give neoadjuvant chemotherapy first to sterilize the lymph nodes. So what are your thoughts on this? And I'm wondering if you found anything from your study that can guide moving forward. Okay, you know, as you said, the risk of lymph node metastasis in patients with tumor larger than four centimeters is higher than 30%. So in our center, we perform lymph node evaluation before neoadjuvant chemotherapy in all patients that deserve fertility sparing treatment. And even when there is some data about the low rate of identified lymph node metastasis after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, suggesting that possible sterilization of the nodes, we consider that lymph node disease is a major contraindication for fertility sparing management, and particularly in cases with a higher risk given the tumor size. So we don't uh, offer that option for our patients. In our review, all patients, uh, of course, had surgical lymph node evaluation. Seven patients uh, underwent laparoscopic lymphadenectomy before the chemotherapy, and the other 19 patients underwent uh, pelvic lymphadenectomy after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. You know, this is a, a super selected population and there are no cases of lymph node metastasis identified for these 26 patients because they finally received fertility sparing treatment. Yeah, and then that actually brings me to, to my next question uh, because I think, you know, you mentioned really optimistic results in terms of response rates. And I, and I think you actually alluded to, to, to the fact that these were actually good results uh, from, from, from what you're presenting in this study. Um, but one of the things that, you know, obviously we need to discuss is a, it's a huge selection bias um, here, given that most likely patients who did not respond did not get reported. Uh, in other words, what, what we have in the literature are the, the good stories, the, the, the good outcomes, uh, as one would consider that most centers that try neoadjuvant chemotherapy on a patient with a tumor that is greater than four centimeters and that tumor progresses or there's further spread of disease, most likely those patients are not going to get reported. So what are your thoughts and what can you tell our audience about that element of a selection bias? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, that's so important. Uh, I think that the information about the prognosis in these few patients uh, should be evaluated with caution. 
you know, the most relevant risk of bias, like you said before in this type of study, are selection and publication bias. It's uh, really possible that most patients that try fertility sparing treatments and finally did not reach a positive result are not reported or even not published when someone tried to report that case. And also, uh, like I said before, it's highly probable that the leave node positivity in real world practice is absolutely higher than the reported in retrospective uh, series. So uh, we, we think really that, that that's the important message. These results should be seen uh, with caution. Uh, it's highly probable that the results in real world practice are really different and the um, uh, rate of uh, fertility spring treatment finally are really lower than we can have here. Yeah. Um, the next question comes uh, again from Catherine hicks Courant in um, she asks, uh, I think, uh, an important point um, is that she says only 30% of patients try to conceive in your study, which again speaks to the fact that we're perhaps exposing the patients to a greater risk by not performing chemo radiation for a wish of future fertility, and then they don't even attempt to get pregnant. So I was wondering what, what your thoughts are on this, because you know, obviously there's there's data about radical trachelectomy patients. And as I recall, it was about 40 to 42% of patients who have a radical trachelectomy never even attempt to get pregnant. So these are even higher risk patients. So what, what are your thoughts with regards to how we should counsel our patients that are actually considering this as an option? Uh, you know, that, that's an excellent comment, but also nowadays for almost every decision that we make in clinical practice for from simple risk interventions to the most complex procedures, it requires adequate counseling for our patients about the risk, the success and the failure rates. And they are more informed than before, you know, and we must keep in mind that the final decision is only made by the patient. Of course, there should be clear limits for the treatments that we offer, and there should be a clearly state what the standard treatment for the disease is. And also we think that there should be a manifested desire of the patient to preserve her fertility potential. And also uh, all patients should be evaluated by the fertility specialist before the treatment. However, uh, we think that if a well-informed patient wants to preserve her fertility potential during the initial treatment, it does, not, it does not mean that she must try to get pregnant later. That's also a personal decision. And uh, yeah, you know, also about our own data, uh, I should mention that unfortunately uh, we did not get information about pregnancy attempt for almost 20% of cases, and that would change our results also. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, and it's, again, it's not surprising, even in the, in the prospective studies, uh, we just uh, uh, published a conserved trial. Um, even in those prospective settings, you often don't have very accurate data on how many patients are actually trying to, to get pregnant. I think you, you brought up an excellent point with regards to ultimately the decision is, is on the patient, but you also reemphasize as long as they're very well informed. And I think uh, this is an excellent example of that. Um, tell us about the, the conception rates and the rates of preterm deliveries in these patients. 
Oh, sure. Uh, we had information about obstetric and prenatal outcomes for 20 patients. That's uh, almost 75% of our cases. Only six patients tried to conceive, and four of them achieved at least one pregnancy. There was one patient with two pregnancies. There were five pregnancies among those for women. Uh, three of them were preterm deliveries, fortunately 35 weeks uh, for all of them. That's a good prognosis for the newborn. Two were term deliveries and no miscarriages were reported. Uh, all patients with preterm deliveries had a radical trachelectomy as primary treatment as a possible risk factor uh, that is well known. Great. And uh, this next question comes from um, Jessica and Hussein, uh, our fellows as well. Um, they were asking about uh, survival outcomes. Um, did you have any data with long-term survival? Uh, in, in other words, with long median follow-up? Yes, I know. Uh, first of all, for that question, I, I think I should mention that, again, this population described in our review is a highly selected population. Uh, there is a few patients with really good oncologic uh, prognosis. These patients uh, all had negative preparative image, all had a negative lymph node evaluation to the surgical specimens, even with sentinel lymph node detection and ultrastaging for some cases, all had uh, a good clinical and pathological response after the neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, had no adverse factors in the final pathology report requiring adjuvant surgical or, radi or radiotherapy treatment. So this is a really highly selected population. Uh, and now about the follow-up, you know, the median follow-up for these uh, studies was uh, 55 months. It's kind of good in ranging between 6 and 120 months. 77% of cases had a follow-up longer than 24 months, more than two years for most of patients. And the only two reported recurrences were diagnosed at six months of follow-up. And, you know, most of recurrences should occur during the first two years. So maybe the their follow-up is not bad for, for these studies. Yeah, and it, <clears throat> I think it's important to, to highlight that uh, follow-up is extremely important uh, in, in particularly from retrospective data because for those studies that had shorter follow-up, even if their initial data reporting was very optimistic, if the patient subsequently had a recurrence or died of their disease, it's unlikely that those groups will say, well, here, let me report on an additional follow-up for those patients. It's just an event that occurs and um, things move forward. So I think it's important to highlight that to, to those who are listening to, to the podcast as well. Um, another question that came up from our fellows, and, and I think it's an important question, unlikely that you will have been able to capture this from, from your study, but we'd love to hear your opinion about it. Um, should patients in this population that undergo fertility sparing successfully and have a child, should they have a completion hysterectomy after they deliver that child? Uh, that's an excellent question because it's still a matter of debate as the evidence for management of these patients after treatment is really limited. You know, there is no high quality evidence comparing long-term outcomes with or versus without a hysterectomy to guide that decision. Even in patients with tumors between two and four centimeters, it's even less 
for patients with tumors larger than four centimeters. We think also that the procedure should be discussed with patients to offer individualized recommendations. We consider in our center hysterectomy by patient request, especially in the first years of follow-up and otherwise uh, in case of, of course, any pop abnormalities or particularly uh, in the case of uh, satisfactory evaluation because of cervical stenosis during the follow-up uh, once pa patient uh, childbearing is complete. But you know, there is no high quality for that uh, recommendation. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that again, as you said, it's such a few number of patients that we don't really have data to make a recommendation. I think it has to be individualized. Um, <clears throat> next question comes from Christina Ewings. Uh, she's in the UK. Um, and um, her question is more likely more so of a broader uh, question on neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the setting of cervical cancer. Uh, she writes, do you think there's a role for neoadjuvant chemotherapy for women with tumors greater than four centimeters to then facilitate a radical hysterectomy rather than chemoradiation, or should this only be used for fertility sparing procedures? Uh, you know, uh, this has been assessed before in, I think, two randomized clinical trials. The first one maybe is the published uh, ACO in 2018 by Gupta et al. Uh, there were more than 600 patients. Unfortunately, there were also patients with 2A and 2B stages but uh, almost 100 patients uh, had 1B stage with tumors larger than four centimeters. And there was no benefit in terms of progression-free survival or overall survival. And there, more than 40% of patients finally required a and radiotherapy uh, as part of their treatment or some of them because the, there was impossibility of primary surgical management. And the second study, I think, uh, is the EORTC that have only preliminary results showing basically the same more than 600 patients, also patients uh, with uh, 1B2 and 2B st uh, stages, and there uh, was no benefit in terms of overall survival, and also almost 40% of cases required uh, radiotherapy in the surgery arm. So far, uh, we consider that chemo radiotherapy is the standard treatment for this population uh, in patients with non-fertility sparing treatment and maybe neoadjuvant chemotherapy for surgical management should, should be considered only in clinical trials or in case uh, radiotherapy is not available uh, given the limited resources as happening in some poor countries. Great, very well said. Um, now the question also is, you have a patient that comes in with a tumor larger than four centimeters. They undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy for the purposes of fertility preservation. What should be the routine follow-up for these patients? What is the standard surveillance? I would imagine you would have to follow these patients a lot closer than someone else. So uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, what we do in clinical practices as these patients receive non-standard treatment, uh, we think they should be followed really carefully. There are also, there is no evidence again for guiding the follow-up schemes, but patients require periodic clinical uh, evaluation. We follow them every three months for the first years. Uh, we call postscopy evaluation. Periodically, we also make a pap smear. And uh, we also use magnetic uh, resonance imaging every six months for the first uh, two years for this follow-up. Uh, we really uh, look close these patients. Absolutely. So, uh, David, I want to ask you uh, one last question. Um, 
what should be the take home message from, from this uh, review? What should we uh, use as a, as a tool from this review to counsel our patients or make decisions when a patient with a large tumor, more than four centimeter, comes to us asking about fertility preservation? Sure. I think that the most important message of this review is that fertility sparing surgery after neoadjuvant chemotherapy in patients with cervical cancer and tumors larger than four centimeters is feasible. Still, the evidence is really limited and there are only a few successful cases reported. This approach we think should be considered an experimental intervention and all providers that offer fertility preserving treatment to patients with this kind of tumors should try to participate in clinical trials or at least prospectively collect their own data. And we're working now on that. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I completely agree with you. I think that uh, the, the only way to actually capture this data is to um, build multi-institutional registries that will be able to uh, collect information about these patients, as I highly doubt that there's going to be ever enough patients in this population to do a, a prospective randomized uh, study. So thank you very much, uh, David, for, for your time, uh, for accepting our our invitation. Uh, congratulations to you and the rest of the team in, um, in, in putting this uh, work together. And, and thank you for sending it to, to our journal. Um, thank you for all of the contributions you're already making in your early phase of your academic career in gynecologic oncology. So we're excited and look forward to more work from you and your team. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure.